the reason I write the way that I do and write what I do and focus on what I do is to give the alternate side of the coin to write stories where we are the protagonists, where we're driving the story, where conjure magic is portrayed authentically, where we are affecting the outcome of the story instead of being secondary or tertiary characters if we're featured at all. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass and dictators die, and the power they took from the people will return to the people. Because history has shown us that courage can be contagious, and hope can take on a life of its own. I will bring you hope. And I ask only one thing in return. We move now, together. Not at all. Hope is not lost today. It is found. Hope is what keeps you going. Even if the whole world is telling you to move, it's your duty to plant yourself like a tree, look them in the eye and say no. You move. Welcome to the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Will Jen be the white girl from Get Out? No, I will not be. And if I start being that person, Tanya is here to save everybody. Yes. Yay. I will beat you with a deer head. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <laughs> fair. Totally fair. I'm Jen. I'm Tanya. And today on Skiffy and Fancy, we have three very wonderful guests here to talk with us about black horror, sort of the trends, the tropes, the possibilities, and everything in between. So I would like to welcome Eden Royce, Linda Addison, and Cherie Renee Thomas. Welcome to the show, all of you. Thank you. Hello, hello. Delighted to be here. Thank you. Eden, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself, your work, and what is your connection to Black horror, horror in general? What got you into the field? I am Eden Royce. Um, my connection to Black horror is that I'm Black, and I am a writer of dark fiction, which includes horror, sci-fi, some dark fantasy, combinations of the above, Mostly, I would say my work falls into the realm of Southern Gothic horror, but I have um, branched out a bit to include some other dark and twisted things. And you can find me online um, on Twitter, at Eden Royce, and you can find me, usually, um, I'm <laughs> updating my website, uh, which is EdenRoyce.com. Awesome. And Linda, how about you? Hi there, I'm here. This is Linda Addison. I have been writing horror for many, many, many years. I was the first African-American to win the Bram Stoker Award from the Horror Writers Association, and I've won four. I also received their Lifetime Achievement Award this year. I'm not even going to start with I'm the first black because I'm kind of tired of that unicorn room. And I have over 260 poems in print, fiction, nonfiction, and I am also one of the um, editors on Sycorax's Daughters, which is the first collection of black women writing horror that also was a finalist for Bram Stoker, so I'm delighted about that one. Oh, and my site, sorry, my site. Um, Linda Addison Poet, one word, because there is another Linda Addison. She's not a poet, looks nothing like me. 
Just saying. <laughs> she's like a white blonde lady lawyer, isn't she? Right. But she wins awards too. I think she just got the lifetime achievement. So we're following each other in that sort of, you know, ivory and, and Ebony. Ivory. Yeah, that ebony and ivory thing. Parallel lives. Exactly. <laughs> and Cherie, tell us about yourself. Hi, I'm Cherie Renee Thomas and my connection to Black Horror is that I was born black, female, and <laughs> southern. <laughs> Um, I had a wonderful family that told me hate tales and other really true, scary, horrifying historical tales as well um, from their own lives and from around us. So I was marked by terror. My mom used to watch a show uh, that used to come on television um, hosted by a man named Mr. Sivad, and he would say, good evening. And um, <laughs> that imprint of the, his uh, fantastic features, creature features show kind of affected me early on in life. So I think I just always wrote magical dark thing. Um, you can find me online under Black Pot Mojo, um, at Black Pot Mojo. And you can find me on Aqueduct Press. And I'm also a new third man books author. So I'm out and about. <laughs> Ooh, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So obviously, all of you know way more than I do about anything. So I'm basically going to hand this discussion essentially over to you guys. But obviously, one of the reasons that I wanted to have this discussion was one, well, it's Black Speculative Fiction Month, which is awesome. And two, uh, it's October. Best month of the year. (laughs) Absolutely. It seemed like a natural pairing to have a discussion about this. And it's, it's a genre that I've sort of slowly been introduced to over the last year. Aiden and I and Troy Wiggins had a discussion about Black Southern speculative fiction earlier this year, which of course involved horror and the gothic, which was a lot of fun. And then of course with Tanya, I've been introduced to writers like Charles Chestnut and all three of you again, writing just fantastic horror stories for Nightlight Podcast. So I wanted to just kind of start us off with a history of the genre in general. Where do you see it starting? Where has it gone over the last century? And, and where is it now? So why don't we start with Linda? Oh, great. Because I wanted to start with where it begins. Yeah. So because I discovered this myself, writing an essay for um, February, Black History and Black Women in Horror Month, I did, I wanted to dig in and find out where's the first story of horror written by Blacks. And I didn't even know this myself. And I ended up with Zora Hurston's book. And in there, she took these stories, they're really short pieces from slaves that she had documented and took down in their words. And these were the first documented in America horror stories. And it was amazing to me because this was such an enlightenment. I could have, I could have spent weeks and days understanding the whole concept. And in this were stories about ghosts and witches and all kinds of other demons, which no one would have ever thought. And they're all like maybe a page big. So in my mind, as much as I know, in America, the first horror began as stories told around a fireplace by slaves. Um, I was thinking um, not only of Zora Neale Hurston, of course, she collected all the great stories um, in her travels, but also um, 
Tituba. Oh, yeah. Who um, was considered the Black Witch of Salem. Mm. In fact, uh, Maurice Condé, who wrote a novel about her, great Guadalupean author, um, just received a wonderful new prize in lieu of the Nobel Prize for Literature. But um, Tituba arguably gave some of the earliest horror stories in the Americas. Being um, a black woman from uh, uh, from the islands, I believe she had um, indigenous heritage as well, and told the stories to the little pilgrim girls who were in her care, which sort of sparked the Salem witch area that took place after that. So it would be those stories, I think, by Tituba that she gathered from her home, her childhood in the islands. I am with Linda as well as far as loving to research um, the origins of, of Black horror. And so much of our horror has been passed down just verbal stories, things that have not always been written. Uh, one of the first written ones that I came across when I was doing some research was by Pauline E. Hopkins. Uh, she was a, a writer, journalist, editor. Um, probably one of the most influential literary editors in the first decade of the 20th century. And she wrote Of One Blood. And I believe it was a four-part series of novellas that includes lots of horror themes of death, catatonia, sort of losing sense of self. And for me, that was one of the earliest published, not only written by a Black person, but also published by uh, a Black person as far as horror and dark fiction. Um, I just started reading this book called Horror Noir from Robin Means Coleman. And in the first chapter, Robin talks about how The Birth of a Nation came out and it depicted Blacks in this way that was degrading and you know likening them to savages and and things like that and that as a result a lot of black creatives started creating their own films to sort of counteract that negative image from the birth of a nation especially given that the birth of a nation was a fairly successful film i mean it was screened in the white house and um the president at the time you know said that it was a good film and that and that the saddest part of it was that it was all true or something something along those lines so i feel like early horror in particular you know horror written by black people was more reactionary now what Linda said about the oral traditions, I think that's where horror absolutely began, but I don't think it started to get published and in print until much, much later. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, you know, not the least of which is it was a crime to learn to read and write. Exactly. But oral traditions are really where Black horror begins and where it stayed for a really long time, I think. And what's so interesting, if I can just kick in real quick, about what I read um, about these stories, especially about the devil, is that because the slaves couldn't talk about the fact that they were enslaved or the white masters, they told them in symbolism through story. So the stories about the devil was really their way of being able to talk about being enslaved by white. So that was really fascinating. I just keep thinking of Charles Chestnut. Charles Chestnut and his Conjure Woman tells all the stories of High John the Conqueror. 
Um, a lot of those are funny, but there are also some really scary ones too. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's funny that we we joke about you know the white woman in in um, Get Out, but it seems like at least on these shores, the horror was brought to black citizens, black Americans, by white people. They were the most horrific influences in their lives. So it would make sense that they would create tales that kind of help them cope with that um, trauma that they had to deal with on a historical level and then on a, on a multi-generational level, the internal and external struggles with that. And if you look back also in our very old and ancient spiritual traditions and religious traditions, there's this mixing of what we're seeing as dark or evil forces on the continent and how that changed through the, the slave trade and how it changed through us being dropped off in different places around the world and how that got incorporated with what the new, what those people discovered when they came to these new lands. And those old um, traditions got mixed in with the new that they encountered and became new stories, new villains, new horrors, and new heroes. <laughs> and new heroes as well. I think that it's it's true, definitely, with horror being a way of coping with trauma. Um, I do a an occasional uh, interview and article for Graveyard Shift Sisters, and one of the questions I've asked in the past is how can we as Black people um, love horror and be people with a history of such trauma? And it's always interesting to see how people that love horror, read horror, write horror, watch horror... Um, respond to that question. And most of the time it is being able to cope with trauma, being able to process what has happened to us in the past, um, sort of still trying to filter out that blood memory that we have um, of what our ancestors went through. And it's a way to not necessarily make sense of things, but it's a way to take back control in a situation where so much was outside of your control. And it allowed, as you said, I believe, Cherie, uh, it allowed symbolism to come into those stories. And it allowed us to talk about things openly in front of slave owners, outsiders, whatever group, and still have nuanced meanings that were special and specific to us. So much of our horror started out as cautionary tales, making sure to inform others of where they shouldn't go or who they shouldn't talk to or who they shouldn't get involved with. And it's part of that, um, that protection that we've tried to, to place around ourselves, especially being brought to the United States and, and then into chattel slavery, it was incredibly important to do what protecting you could. And a lot of those stories originated from that. And Eden, you brought up something um, that I thought was kind of interesting. You know, in, in, writing, in writing horror, it's kind of a way to, to deal with those emotions. I wonder what you guys think about the fact that if we look back in the past, the times when Black horror specifically sort of became more quote unquote mainstream and started to get more right. You know, it's our, it's always been there, right? Like we've always been telling horror stories. It's just, is it 
recognized by the wider world. And I feel like that tends to happen during periods in which there is more civil unrest, in which there is, you know, the civil rights movement, um, reconstruction. Um, and then lately with the election of Trump, it's, I feel like black horror is being more recognized by the wider world than it was, you know, previous to these issues, like making the news and being something that everyone's talking about. What I think uh, when you say that, since I've been writing for, I don't know, 50 years, 60 years, something like that. I mean, I'm 66, so no, I wasn't writing when I was six years old, but I was making up stories. <laughs> but um, as my mother said, weird stories. I think it's been sort of this transition. And when I, when I see it now, I'm, I'm more delighted than I've ever been. Because when, I, when Blacks started becoming even an awareness in horror, not in genre, because I think we had a little teeny footprint in horror. You know, there were brown people, not in horror, in science fiction and fantasy. There were a couple brown people there, you know. And Cherie, uh, with Dark Matter One, was a huge part of all of a sudden saying, to the world, by the way, here are black people who are not just writing about, you know, what we've suffered and how to survive, but we also have these wild imaginations that we process our lives through. And I think it's absolutely true that when things get tough, well, blah, 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 the tough get going, but in the last few years, and maybe the last 15 years, there's been this sort of growing trend with horror, and not just in the small world, of, and I don't mean small in any way other than the publishing footprint of the black community, but in the uh, bigger world, like when I won the first Stoker, which I really thought was going to be Tanana Reeve Du in 97, to be honest with you, she, as far as I know, she was probably the first one on the final ballot, even though she didn't win. And I held that for a long time as the only black having a Stoker. And I was like, what the, <laughs> what the peanut butter and jelly is going on? You know, and... <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, and, and what has happened since I won um, in those early years is that in the last couple in particular, there's been like more awareness of blacks. That's why I was so happy to be part of Sycorax's Daughters. And then finally this year, two other blacks won. We can talk about that later. But I think also there's a growth in the community of self-publishing, of publishers, black publishers uh, jumping up, the small presses that are interested in more out of the normal uh, kind of work publishing black writers of horror fiction and and poetry but when i grew up there was nothing there was all about like the scary movies and you know the the you know the black when the black vampire movie and all that stuff but i think in the publishing world i feel like it's still relatively new i don't know how others of you feel no i would agree with that for sure, I think movies have far surpassed books and have been far ahead of publishing for their entire existence, basically. Yeah, through the, going through the whole time. I mean, if you go back to the black and white movies um, from, the, the, you know, the 40s, what is it? Was it Spencer Williams who was doing like the Blood of Jesus and the other horror movies? The independent um, black horror movies that were being done early, there weren't. I mean, there wasn't like a parallel um, movement in publishing to publish those stories. They were writing the scripts first, casting them mostly all black cast, and then filming, um, filming and directing them and producing them themselves, and then distributing them through the Chitlet Circuit. 
you know. So that was happening. And then you go into the black exploitation era where you have, um, you know, Blackula uh, or um, or some other films like that. Or even um, my favorite, uh, Ganja and Hess, Bill Ganja, Ganja and Hess, um, uh, which was just to me um, a, just a revelatory film. I really, really loved that film. They were being done outside of, for the most part, being done outside of the mainstream. And they were part of underground cult classics. You know, they were the underground cult classics. Trying to express visually some of the themes and things that the community across the country, black community, was experiencing in, um, in their everyday lives, you know, socially, politically, economically. It was, you know, treated through this lens of horror. But I wonder, I wonder why publishing is so far behind. You know, there, you know, there's certainly barriers to creating your own movies and there's barriers to self-publishing as well. And we know that there were black writers self-publishing novels, horror novels specifically. But what is it about movies versus books that made it easier for black people to find a voice in there and to be heard? Well, I, I think for sure it's not, you can't separate publishing from a lot of other areas, right? Okay, I made my money before I retired in software development. There were precious few blacks in software development and even less black women doing software development. So it really falls step in step. You know, it was fine for, it was quite acceptable to have stories and poetry about the violence and inequity uh, in Essence magazine or anywhere else. But for New York publishers and the big publishers to say, let's do a collection, I can remember 20 years ago, the whole conversation in publishing in New York was Blacks don't buy genre. Mm -hmm. So why would they even think of writing, of, of publishing us? So it's, it's, you know, that has turned around because they see now that blacks do spend money reading. So <laughs> in the last 20 years. So there's been a slew of Shocking. things. I know, imagine that. And, you know, a big thing, as I said, for me, because I have been published in um, some large anthologies and stuff like that, I'm always thinking, and, and it's become very pleasing to me, here, you know what? I'm not the only black person writing horror. I'm not the only black woman writing horror. And to try to bring more light into the wider world of horror about the, the black areas that are publishing really imaginative, wonderful work that they're not taking into account. So I don't think it's that different from society's whole march about blacks and equality. And by the way, the whole thing about being uh, the horror of violence, it's still every day right here with us. So we still, to me, a lot of the horror that comes for blacks, when I talk to non-black community people, I'm like, you know what? We live in horror every day. You know, I have a son who, when I sent him out to school, even though it was in nice areas in New York, I was scared. Why? Because he was black. So, you know, to translate that everyday horror into imaginative horror, that's also part of the transformation into publishing for us. So that kind of brings up another thought that I've had. So I, I judge horror movies for a film festival. You know, I run Nightlight, read submissions through there. And 
when I'm looking at horror and, you know, sort of grouping people by, you know, white men, women, black women, just those really broad groups, I find that black people write more believable horror than white people do. And my guess for that is, I think, because there is so much to fear in our day-to-day lives and how much we have to pay attention to things that a white man, for instance, doesn't have to, you know, doesn't even think about it, doesn't cross his mind, that we have developed this depth of observation that perhaps other communities that aren't marginalized, they don't create that adaptation in their mind. They don't necessarily see the same things that we see. I wonder what you guys think about that. I was just talking to a friend here in Memphis um, about his childhood growing up in an area um, in South Memphis. And the stories he had to tell me, some of them were really funny. (laughs) Some were really funny. He lived, um, you know, he was like one of the, I guess he described himself as a nerd then. And his mother and and siblings had to move to this new neighborhood. And they got broke in, as you can say, as we say here, he got broke in. into what 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 was what in that community and it was pretty horrifying <laughs> um the physical um abuse that he experienced the verbal abuse and just walking around the terror of of it and then you get you know you get acclimated to it and it's sad to say but you get acclimated to it and then you develop coping mechanisms and then you become a part of the community but that fear that there's that you're only one interaction or one incident or one comment from things going left very quickly <laughs> It's another thing. He also witnessed um, some things just by accident, just by breathing and living in the neighborhood. Um, You know, you're with someone and all of a sudden somebody's breaking in or there's bullets flying or whatever. Something's gone. They're looking for somebody else and you guys just happen to be in the area. All that's pretty terrifying. So I, I think if you do, if you are a part of places that are under duress, um, disinvested, communities where all the resources are deliberately being siphoned out. I mean, I think of the movie Candyman and the Cabrino, Cabrino uh, Green apartments and that just that whole gentrification situation where people are deliberately placed in this bowl of, of poverty, this bowl of poverty that they have to try to scrape their nails to try to climb up out of that, you know, standing on the backs of each other to get out of there. And then we celebrate one or two people escaping you know, and call that a success. That's going to be a part of you if you're writing horror. You're going to, you know that it's not necessarily a thing of your imagination. You're not paranoid. It's not just a story that you tell uh, wee ones to, you know, frighten them in the night. These are things that can go wrong, very wrong. So I could definitely see how horror, black horror could be far more powerful, I guess, if you come from places where you have to witness it and experience it. And I mean, it could just also be that black horror resonates more with me, but, you know, even looking like at a technical level at the level of detail in the writing, I find that there's more detail when I read something written by a black author. And I mean, it's the same thing if you if you read anything by a white woman versus a white man, the white woman has more details than the white man does on average. You know, that's obviously not always the case. Um, So if anybody wants to send hate mail. Steal your fingers. No, no hate mail. <laughs> they can send it to me and then I'll just throw it in the trash for you. That sounds excellent. But you know what it is? It's it's also like if you're on the if you're on the top of the heap in terms of power, status, 
who gets listened to, um, how many benefits of doubt you get, how mediocre you can be to succeed and be, you know, functional, live a magical, wonderful life. You are not going to necessarily be trained as well to pay attention to a whole bunch of other things. Um, you expect certain things to flow in a way that is conducive to your success. It doesn't mean you don't have challenges and you don't have to work or whatever. It just means you have to do you. You get to flow quite differently from others. And I think about it. Um, just being in some of my early workshop experiences, I didn't study writing um, formally when I was in college. Um, was, you know, I studied history, uh, not creative writing. But I just think about like some of my early writing workshop experiences where other people would come to the table with their stories and there would be this blankness because they didn't know anything about the culture that was being discussed. If it wasn't like normal, you know, mainstream white culture, then they had they didn't know what to do with it. And they didn't even seem to have the coping mechanisms to to to, to figure it out or to or to do all the things that anybody else who isn't white <laughs> in America has to do since childhood. You got to do it since elementary school. You know, you got to learn how to you got to know all their references. You've got to know all, you know, how to code switch just to function. And, you know, Cherie, that's just like, that's a, almost a human situation. You can go to another country and if you find a group that have been put aside to be stepped on so everyone else can be standing taller, you'll find the same dynamic. And that is that we have to, when we're writing, when we go into a room, when I worked on Wall Street with software development, when I walked in the room, whether they, they wanted to or not, I demanded to be treated the same as everyone else. But if I was a white male, that wasn't even a thought. And if I was a white woman, it was. You did have to kind of push a little bit. So it's like, that's just a natural, you know, when you're not awake and realizing that there's humans on this planet and being respectful of all of them, that's how it breaks down. That's how people break it down. Well, I also wonder, you know, in terms of, you know, not only living, living that life and, you know, seeing things from a different perspective, but also I feel like, you know, personally, and from what I've seen just in the submissions box for Nightlight is a lot of black writers, I don't want to necessarily say that we're afraid to put ourselves out there, but we take a lot longer before we start sending out our work for other people to read. We will sit on it so much longer than anybody else. And I think that makes all this sense because again, I'm always like, I want to support the wider world of genre writing, understanding that there are other people who don't look and sound like you who have incredible stories that you would enjoy. You know, I'm going to wave that flag always. I understand why people get sensitive and tense about walking in because you, if you feel like immediately you're going to be rejected, just by the look of your face, just because you used a word that's not the normal, you know, word used by the people you grew up having to read, then, you know, it's real hard to, to walk into that tender space with the, you know, with your work, which is your babies. So how long were you writing before you actually started submitting your work to be published? Are you kidding? Girl, please. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. I graduated from college and I didn't study writing in college because I grew up poor and I just felt like being an artist meant more poverty. I didn't want to make that choice. Mm -hmm. So I got a BS in math and went into computers. But as soon as I got to out of college, first story I finished, it looked like it might be science fiction. Isaac Asimov science fiction. Hey, what's up? Took me 13 years to get in there. I said that every piece of shit that even looked like it might be science fiction. 
And it was in the beginning, I was getting rejection letter, rejection letter, and I sent it somewhere else. And the first publication was in some mineograph newsletter in Idaho or something. I was so happy. Anyway, <laughs> 13 years down the line, I start getting like letters from the editor like, I like what you did with this. I know they were like, oh my God, here she comes again. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, I like what you do with this. And then one story, one story was like, um, a story about an elevator that fell in love. I was like, this is it. This is it. I sent it in. I think it was Gardner Dozois or something. It was like, oh, Linda, we just accepted a story that by Isaac Asimov who about an elevator that falls in love. I was like, get the hell out of here. I wrote him. <laughs> I wrote Asimov. Uh, I was like, yo, dude, I've been trying to get into your magazine forever. You don't need this publication. You know, I have the letter. He wrote me back and he said, you know, I get rejected too. From his own, from his own publication. <laughs> yep, subtext, suck it up. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so what about you, Eden? How long did it take you to start submitting? Um, well, I didn't study English or creative writing or anything like that in college either. Um, I went to school for business administration um, and went into corporate America. And the first thing I ever wrote was not even a horror story. and. I still sent it out because I was, I'd reached a point of frustration with my day job and I wanted an outlet and I just wanted to be able to tell stories, get my work out there. And yeah, there's that fear that you have with your finger hovering over the return button or the enter button. But I was, I was at a point where I so wanted that creative part of me to be able to flourish. I just went, I'm doing this. So I think I probably waited maybe a few days before I sent something in. Um, but as far as horror goes, it was probably a very short period of time because I was really responsive to a, a call for submissions for a deadline. And I found it sort of close to the to that deadline, and I wanted to write something for it. And um, I ended up sending it out maybe a few days later. I had some difficulty with my confidence early on. I was in a writer's group. I was the only person of color in the writer's group, and I ended up getting a lot of I'm not sure, you know, I understand what you mean here. Or, you know, I think I see what you're getting at, but I this this doesn't come through to me as um what this character would actually do or say in this situation. So, I had to get past all of that and just say, "No, this is my character. This is my story. This is what I want to put on the page." And just sort of Either close your eyes, hold your breath, and just hit that button, and just go. And dealing with rejection is never easy, obviously, especially early on, but it's something that you have to compartmentalize and realize that it isn't always you as the reason that you're getting rejected. And I think for Blacks, that's what you just said about not being understood, about your point of view not being uh, respected. It's so huge. It, it absolutely is. And when you've put yourself on the page, which a lot of us do, a lot of times those first few stories that we write are born of a personal experience. They're born of something that's happened to us and 
We need to process it through the page. So early on, when you've written something that is that new and that tender and that much a part of, of who you feel that you are, it's, it's incredibly difficult to make the decision to share it with anyone. Really quickly, because I just interviewed Danny Lore, and one of the things that they said was that the mere existence of a market that they knew would welcome their voice and their story gave them the confidence to create those stories. And that was FIA. That's why markets like FIA, like Nightlight, are so important. And as the publishing industry, as the indie publishing industry grows in terms of run by or focusing on writers of color, it seems like to me that we're going to get even more writers of color coming into genre markets because they finally feel like they can, that they, they have that place that is going to understand what they're talking about. I think that is the absolute truth. And there's no one path that's going to open up the world to interesting stories, no matter what you look like, the writer. I think what's happening now, and again, since I'm in, you know, I have some small recognition in the wider world, um, you know, when I'm asked in interviews and on panels, how can we be more diverse and how can we be more inclusive? I have been beating the drum for many years now saying it's all about the gatekeepers. It's all about who's reading these stories. It's all about them being able to recognize a different voice other than what they grew up on and they were taught in school. And there are, are publishers and anthologists who are starting to pay attention to that. And people who don't are starting to get not good press. So I'm hopeful on all ends. Well, I just wanted to loop back into how I started writing. I started writing poetry and essays initially. I was writing, I um, wrote an essay about the sister named Jackie who was protesting the National Civil Rights Museum when it was first built here in Memphis. It was Lorraine Motel, and she was the last remaining um, resident there. And um, so I interviewed her and wrote a story about um, her perspective and what she felt um, should have been happening versus a museum being built in the name of Dr. King. And I had a professor who said, why aren't you writing more? Why aren't you publishing? Why aren't you writing for the school paper? And I was like, um, <laughs> I write all the time. <laughs> which I was, I was writing all the time. Even my Sora's new, I'm always writing and reading, but I didn't necessarily feel this urgency to, to share it. If that makes any sense. Um, it was something I've been doing since I was a child, even writing on the backs of like, you know, envelopes that came in the mail. You know, my grandparents would give me those to write on because I didn't always have paper to write on and what have you. Um, so it just, the idea of switching it over and passing it, sending it out, it just hadn't occurred to me. And so I guess my first publications were essays and poetry. And I kept my stories. I just kept writing my stories and putting them in my drawer, putting them in my drawer, <laughs> putting them in my drawer, because I felt like everything I wrote was a bridge to the next thing that I really wanted to write, if that makes any sense. So I guess my first publications for fiction were in literary journals. That's where I was reading short stories. I remember my parents were really big fans of Omni Magazine, so I remember that being in the house. And I would read science fiction there when um, Ellen Datlow was editing that. But 
getting my regular fix of short fiction came from journals, uh, and particularly black journals. That's what I would go and hunt down to see what was being written in my community and what we, what, how they were telling our stories. That was very important to me. It was interesting because I always wrote works that had regular black people in them speaking in the language that we spoke in. I wasn't really interested in writing stories that translated black culture to white people. And I felt like, you know, we'd already spent decades trying to show that we were dignified, <laughs> decades, <laughs> decades <laughs> trying Ooh. to show that, you know, that we're those good people, we're good people, you know, we're those good bougie la, we call them bougie la. So I wasn't going to write too many bougie la stories because I felt like the real river of, of black existence wasn't always being depicted in its all its glory and nuances. So that's what I was working towards. And that was interesting sitting in workshops and it didn't even matter if they were white or black, you know, it was always the same kind of questioning of should you be writing in this way? And are these people that you're writing about worthy of being written about whose stories deserve to be told and what kinds of characters should readers feel comfortable identifying with? And I think that's part of the gatekeeping. If you are, and I, and, and I will just say this, of course, I work in book publishing as well. And so that was part of my formative life, thinking about my own writing, watching how editors at Random House and other places made decisions about what they would publish and what they would not publish and why and how they would promote it. And one of the things I remember thinking about Right before I started working on Dark Matter, the first volume, was this ideal of gatekeeping as a way of showing the kinds of works that are idealistic for American culture. Like they were seem very conscious at sitting at the table that they were some of the gatekeepers that were that were deciding what would be a part of the record for American life. And so when they got books, whether they were fiction or nonfiction, they had very distinct ideals about who who was worthy of being storied. <laughs> um, um, so it wasn't even just about you as a pup, as a writer being published, but it's also about what you're talking about. Was it deserving of being part of the cultural stream in America? So we, we have to talk about Get Out because we, we just have to. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, there's a lot of thoughts. One of the things that Robin talked about in this book about black horror was that, quote unquote, colored people are funny. And so a lot of white audiences were sold on watching films, short films, features, whatever, with black people in them because black people are funny. And it made me think about how Jordan Peele got his start in comedy, made some money in comedy, made a name for himself, and then he did get out. Much in the same way, if we look at Beyonce, you know, she was very much, you know, pop, but then the more she became known and the more clout she got in that space, the more blacker her music got. So I'm wondering what you guys think about, you know, one, white people in general thinking black people are funny and using that as kind of an entrance into the horror space and how you guys think Jordan Peele possibly navigated all of that. Well, I'm just glad he helped pop that bubble of me being the only black unicorn with a Bram Stoker this year. Thank God. I mean, he the script won a Stoker as, as well as the graphic novel, uh, Kindred, that uh, John Jennings and Damien and them did of Octavia Butler. I think it was unexpected, genius move. 
because yes, everyone thought of him as being funny. And the funny black person in America, you know, is part of a, 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 a kind of glasses to put on of, of survival. You know, that's like a, you could talk about that and socially forever around how the, that came to be. I, when I first saw Get Out, I was like, oh, okay, this is like on so many levels of people different people understanding what's being said in this movie. Like, I think their black community was hearing messages that maybe other people didn't in what he was saying. And so I, I was much, much impressed with how he did that. And also, if you buy the, D, the DVD, which of course I did, so I can watch it a million times, he shows like all these different endings, expected endings, which was so funny and, and different things instead of the unexpected ending that he had. Because forever in all the genre movies, the black character always died. I mean, come on, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Even when we make it to the end, we die. That's right. I watched um, Get Out with my mom. We went out. Um, it, was one of a big, it was a big trip because she doesn't get out very much because of her illness. But it was, it was pretty amazing. And I guess the thing that jumped out at me, I mean, I think I would have been really disappointed if he had had his other ending. Like that, that wouldn't have, that would have kind of unraveled all the genius that he and the cast created beforehand. But um, this whole idea that the black bodies, black life are disposable. First, they're reviled, but they're also envied. They're coveted. They're supposed to be super weak. And yet they are also simultaneously superhuman and strong and powerful and desirable. They're supposed to be, you know, all these contradictory things at once. And I just thought he did a really fine job of showing that um, that dark lust for um, the thing that you that you're trying to oppress and control the most, you know. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it was just quite a ride. And I knew I was in good hands from the moment it started when old boy was on his cell phone and the car kept following him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly, <real>. exactly. <laughs> Like, this is yeah. not going to be that yeah. same old shit that we've been watching. Yeah. And I was just like, I just want to see horror movies where black people act like black people in a horror yes. movie. <laughs> really? Because you know, if, if a black person's in a house and this is an old joke and some boys pulled a guy says, get out, they're getting the hell out. They're getting yeah, exactly. out. They're getting out. It's like, okay. They're getting out before they say out. They're like, they say, get, yes. we're gone. Exactly. <laughs> But is anybody else surprised that they gave Jordan all this money to make that movie? Like, I wonder, I wonder if the script that he pitched was different than the one that got made. Because it's just <laughs> like, there's a whole lot of You think critical... a little hustle went down? You think a little, slick, a little switcheroo went down? <laughs> that would be a good story. I think you should have him on the show and ask him because that would be a good story. I like to be in the room when that happens. Well, you know what? It happened sort of with um, Bill Gunn. I read when I was doing my research on him that he was asked to do like, you know, this little, you know, they wanted to do a black exploitation film and make all that money. Right. And so he was supposed to do this, you know, black vampire movie. And that's what he was pitched to do. But what he came out with was clearly a masterpiece and way beyond that, you know. That that and they didn't like it at all. The studio was pissed. Yeah, <laughs> and um, they were so pissed that they chopped it up. In fact, and and you know re-edited it so they would be kind of stripped down and everything. And we're just so fortunate and blessed that 
you know, someone kept the original, I think it was at the Met or somewhere, in some archive somewhere, and released what he originally created for us to see, all the spiritual and religious stuff in it. But yeah, I, you know, it may have been a little switcheroo that <laughs> went on. I mean, I just don't see white people writing that check. <laughs> like, but think no about it, but the company who did, that did it, aren't they the same ones that did Saw? They're, they're, about pr- they're pretty progressive. They're about that yeah. life. You know what I'm saying? I respect them. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. Really quickly, I didn't hear the name of the movie that Sheree was just talking about. The movie about. I'm always talking about, Ganjan Hess. <laughs> the original, not the Spike Lee one, the original one. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Jen. You should have been able to guess that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm learning. It's all about the learning. <laughs> Starring the same actor that was, isn't it the same actor that was in um, Night of the Living Dead? Yes, Dwayne Johnson. Oh, yeah, yeah, he was in that one. So let's talk about Night of the Living Dead. Ooh. I've read somewhere at one point that originally they were going to have the main character, you know, come out of the house and the police were going to be like, you're safe now, or, you know, whatever. But Dwayne said, that's, that's not how this is going to end. That's not how this works. And so he asked them to rewrite that ending to what it is now. Hmm. That's interesting. Because it would be more realistic. Indeed. Mm-hmm. So obviously y'all haven't heard that. But I'm, I'm wondering, because I've seen this happen with other movies, like The Girl with All the Gifts. Um, if you read the book and you watch the movie, there are some key differences there. And you can tell they took advantage of the fact that there was a main character that was black in the movie. And some of the lines just resonate so much more when spoken by a black voice versus a white voice. And I think that, you know, you talk about colorblindness, for instance, you know, let's just find the best person for the job. Okay, well, that's all well and great, but race doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? You have to take that into account and you can use that to your advantage to tell a better story. So if this is true about Night of the Living Dead, you know, if this is something that did change, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I think black actors were doing that every time they could possibly do so. Because I do recall seeing an interview that William Marshall, um, the great actor that starred in Blackula, among other things, said that um, when he got the script for Blackula, um, he was trying to bring as much dignity to the role as he could. And he just didn't understand why someone who was an African prince would turn on his people in such a way um, and consume them. And so he was the one that told them on the set that they need to add it back. They need to add backstory to this character. I mean, so he made him, he gave him the background and Vanetta, uh, I think it was Vanetta McGee was his co-star and where they were actually approaching Europe, approaching Dracula to try to get assistance in um, slowing down some of the colonial stuff that was taking place in their country. And they were, thought they were going to be treated as equals and ended up getting turned into vampires or he forced the, you know, the Dracula forced the prince to become a vampire. And he then ended up um, feeding off his, his, um, his wife. And that was kind of that, that dark angst that he carried with him, that he was trying to save and rescue his people and ended up becoming a monster to them and um, feeding off them. But that was not in, in at all in the original script for Blackula. <laughs> And it was maybe 10, 10 seconds in the film, but it was enough to give it some kind of 
some kind of dignity where he felt like he could do the role in a way that made some kind of sense to him. So I think black actors have been trying to do that whenever they get a little role. <laughs> he didn't get a co-writing credit for that. No, though, oh, no, of course not. Of course not. Of course <laughs> not. I think, I think that's the other thing is like, you know, we're part of this process. We're creative, you know, not only because we have to be resourceful in our daily lives, but we are a creative people. But we often don't get credited for the things that we do. You know, like, let's take Night of the Living Dead, for instance. I don't think that that movie would have been as big of a hit with a different ending. I think the comment by W.E. Du Bois was made into a film, and they didn't give, they certainly didn't give him any credit for that. I mean, again, this is also just basically reflective of racism as a social, as a social issue. You know, it's not just creative. So it goes, you know, it's not going to stop there. I think that the constant, push against that kind of thing is what is making things change in small, tiny ways. I can remember, and I know you can too, Cherie, back in the day, the concept of having a black character on a genre book was a battle. Oh, yeah. A yeah, battle. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not so much a battle now. I mean, I'm not saying it isn't still something that, you know, authors have to work with, but now you can see it. But I can remember, and I can't remember who the first authors was. I'm thinking Nora Jemison, but I'm not sure that's who, who for sure, who wanted to have black characters on the front of their science fiction books. And it was a gigantic war. I think it was, um, it might have been Nora, but it may also have been Octavia Butler and Justine Laberleister, Lauber I believe. For sure. Yes. No, you're right. When she did the book, oh, it was one of her YA novels. Liar, oh. was it called Liar? Liars, yeah, something like that. No, you're right. Oh my God, that was a battle. Like she had to go through some public drama in order to put a, a girl of color on that cover. And that's less of a battle now. I'm not saying it isn't still, but it's less of a battle. I mean, I have appreciation and I think the, the, the when we say horror is an emotion, it's for true. And the whole thing about even uh, dealing with it Having that end in Night of the Living Dead was so horrible and, and so unjust that it did make the point so much stronger than if it hadn't happened. Whereas in Get Out, if he had done the normal thing, and like I said, I cannot tell you enough that watching the, the alternate endings on the DVD is hysterical because he does have the traditional one on there. <laughs> it's just for a group. So it's a matter of the time. I also still, you know, this is outside of what we're talking about. I still have no problem with, and I, I still have no problem with somebody being a black character that could have been a white character as long as, you know, they can be consistent with themselves, you know, in a colorblind way. But I mean, I think also the idea of being able to make the kind of statements as Sharia has pointed out with the blackular and, and, and uh, what you've mentioned, which I didn't know about Night of the Living Dead is important too. You just have to hit these things from all sides, not one, I believe. This discussion of Night of the Living Dead made me think of one of the most appropriative films in horror history, which is White Zombie which obviously has some major issues, which I think we're all aware of, which is the first sort of mainstream look at the zombie story in the first place, but obviously directly lifted from Haitian stories and never credited to them until much, much later. And so I'm kind of curious what you guys think of that in sort of the context of the broader strokes of black horror in terms of how things from black stories have been appropriated and then are now 
being retaken by the Black horror community? Well, I think part of it is for centuries, whites have felt that taking our stories, they, that they have a right to our stories, and that most of what they find unusual or exotic or different is just story fodder instead of an actual religion, spiritual practices. And it's, it's showing the, how little value sometimes is placed on what Blacks have as part of our culture, as part of our religion, as part of who we are. So I'm sure at the time when White Zombie was written, there was no thought given to you're pulling from a culture, you're pulling from religion and ritual and spiritual practice. I'm sure that it was just seen as, oh, I found out about this thing. No one else is doing it. No one else is writing about it. And it'll be different and we'll make some money. And there's a respect level just not being there, as you said. Yeah, the respect um, level isn't there at all. And moving from White Zombie to even how Romero changed zombies, because currently zombies are seen as these um, chemically generated creatures or maybe the um, offshoot of some virus gone amok or whatever have you, and the actual roots, the actual origins of zombies are so rarely seen in film, read in books. And just with that film, all of a sudden the zombie, the zombie subgenre has completely changed into not someone that is, I'm going to use the term, lovingly created by, by a voodoo practitioner for a specific purpose, but just armies of mindless creatures that are seeking, you know, to devour people. When for me, I think the original Haitian zombie is not just a, a, a horrific situation for a person to be in, but it's also you're creating almost a sympathetic character because technically this person is still completely aware of what's being done to them. And it's not the strain of, of zombie that, that Romero began. It is someone who is fully aware of what's happening to them, fully aware of what they're doing, and are just powerless to stop it. And for me, that's even a, a, a more horrifying prospect. You know, and if, if you think about what was happening in Haiti in the 1930s when, when this movie was being made, you realize that it may also have been sort of a metaphor for what was happening to Haitians themselves. Like you, you're saying, like, you know how they were being used. Um, the person is a victim also and not um, they are conscious of what's happening to them. And it's a, but it's a punishment that's being happened, uh, that's taking place. It's a punishment um, how they're being um, their will is being taken from them. Their agency is being taken from them. And at the time, the Marines had been in Haiti. Since 1915, they didn't really leave until the, um, the 30s. Um, and everything that was being created in Haiti was being exported right out of there, you know. 
not to the benefit of the citizens themselves. They were occupied by the U.S. And so you look years later and they talk about, oh, poor Haiti, isn't it a shame? They can't get it together. You have to look at U.S. Um, intervention over there, corporate exploitation that was taking place there. Um, all of that was horrific. And it's, you know, and then we get this <laughs> this white zombie film that becomes all anyone knows about Haiti for many years is zombies. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it completely erases the people. But it. It also kind of makes me think about, so Eden said something about the root of it, and it kind of got me thinking about root work and how, you know, I grew up hearing those kind of stories. I grew up hearing stories about the zombie of, you know, Haitian lore and not, you know, the or brains kind of zombie. How much of that did you guys grow up with, and how much does that inform your work now? I grew up in a conjure background. Um, I have family members that are root work practitioners. I've been around it my entire life. Stories about clients that come for certain remedies, even homegrown medicines, instead of going to the store to buy something for an ailment. You know, I, my family always had some sort of natural remedy, herbal remedy for what ails you. But it, it certainly does play a huge part in how I write and what I write. Because growing up, I didn't have stories that reflected Southern Conjure in a positive way. I grew up when I did read dark fiction stories that involved any type of Conjure magic. It was always written from the outside looking in of oh, here is this weird, strange, evil thing. And here's how this evil person who's, you know, haggard and crone-like is going to use their voodoo powers to destroy this unsuspecting person who's never done anything in their life and doesn't deserve any of what's coming to them. And I just, I just thought, this is not conjure. This is not hoodoo. This is not root work. And the intent of root work and conjure is not to is not to destroy and it's not to hurt people and is not to to be violent and it's it's protection exactly exactly it's mm -hmm. protecting your own it is trying to make the lives of your family and loved ones better in some way and all i ever read about conjure magic and dark fiction stories uh, was just the opposite of that. And I remember being in a Facebook group at one point about dark fiction or something, and people were tossing out ideas, and someone tossed out the idea of, you know what I could write? I could write a story where this black kid gets beat up by the police or gets shot or something, and then his grandfather does voodoo on the people and kills them all. And I just... I, I'm not typically a person that really gets involved in uh, social media discussions, but I felt compelled to say something at that point. And I just went and wrote this <laughs> response that was essentially, I understand that these dark aspects of conjure magic is what people are drawn to, but this is not the purpose. And Someone isn't going to just, quote, do voodoo on them for 
<laughs> just writing a teaching essay. Here's here's how it really is, children. Yes, and I and like I said, I usually don't do that sort of thing, but I just said, you know, I I have a hard time finding so many of those stories where we are considered evil, malicious, vindictive people just because of spiritual practices, just because of ancestor connections, just because of someone who finds certain aspects of it strange or weird or crazy, or I'm going to morph this into something that it isn't. And the reason I write the way that I do and write what I do and focus on what I do is to give the alternate side of the coin to write stories where we are the protagonists, where we're driving the story, where conjure magic is portrayed authentically, where we are affecting the outcome of the story instead of being secondary or tertiary characters if we're featured at all, especially in a dark fiction setting. Well, I think your story in Sycorax's daughter, Sweetgrass Blood, is like just does a beautiful job of that. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's absolutely, I think I must have written this to you at the time, reading it, how beautifully musical, how poetic, how um, gentle of the spirit and the use of it. And again, I'm going to pass this over to Cherie when I finish talking. Same thing with her story in, in, that opens up Sycorax's daughter's. Cherie does an amazingly beautiful job, again, of capturing this levels of, of, of depth and emotion and sweetness of use. And I don't mean sweet like candy. I mean sweet like spirit of use of magic and, and plants and nature in the black community. And I didn't grow up with it. I'm just going to say real quick. I spent a, a few summers down south and it kind of overheard in, in the surroundings. But I grew up in Philly and I wasn't steeped in it. It was only later when I read a lot more about it. And I can talk after Cherie talks, because I want to hear her, um, about stories that I actually did do the research so that I could write that stuff. But Yeah, it's a very different thing. I grew up, um, grew up, of course, in Memphis in the South. And it's a thing where, you're okay, you're in the middle of the Bible Belt, right? You're in the middle of the Bible Belt and there's a lot of church-going people. And they church and is what they do. But the other thing is there's this other older tradition, this root work, this this conjure work, this healing, this this very practical, pragmatic way of um, approaching um, your health because you don't always have the resources and access to go to a doctor, you know. So there's always going to be, I mean, it's a very common thing. You're going to have people, elders who, one, have absolute mastery of growing things. It's part of the reason why we were kidnapped and brought here in the first place is because of that mastery. Um, of bringing life from the earth and using it to sustain people. So you have all these elders who are master gardeners or what have you, and they recognize um, what trees can do and what the roots can do and different things. And they don't treat it like it's some um, magical thing they put on a cape and they, you know, swirl around <laughs> in the street. I'm the conjure man. I'm the root woman. It's not, <laughs> it's not how it's it's not how it's done. And they don't necessarily they don't have a shingle outside the door. You just know that Miss. Miss so-and-so down the road, you know, down a few houses down has this expertise. You know, they know how to get back to those oral exactly, traditions, you know, and it's so I had to look at things and look at it and realize it was hidden in plain sight. It wasn't until I was older 
um, did I recognize, oh, this is not necessarily coming from the good book. This is coming from something else, <laughs> bigger, broader, wider, that um, that wasn't actually overtly discussed, especially if someone my age, you know, uh, was a nosy child. So, of course, I'm listening. I'm ear hustling. Um, but then I had to go back later and do the research. Um, so you have people. I have one grandmother who was Catholic. She's Catholic, but she's doing stuff that's distinctly not Catholic. You know what I mean? <laughs> You know, and there's, you know, some other things that, are, you know, that people are doing and that they say, and this was a common, I recognize it was a common bit of knowledge and practice that people had. And they didn't see it as contradictory with anything that was happening in the, in the, um, in the church. Um, you know, it, you know, you're going to, you just, this is stuff you needed to know to be able to live and function. And you also understood that whatever you did was not supposed to be in the service of you. It's supposed to be in the service of others. And if you try to, 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 to thwart the natural um, power and healing and all of that for your own selfish gain, it was going to come back on you in negative ways. And those stories were always told, too, you know, of how it mm. came back on them in a, in a bad way. There's so-and-so ucka-bucking down the street. Mm-hmm. Guess what they did? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mean, again, that's just respect of, you know, what sometimes we don't, uh, in this society appreciate, and that is the spiritual and energetic parts of the world. I mean, when I did, the first time I really published something that had to do big time with, with doing, uh, you know, conjuring and so forth, I did a lot of research, and it was for a story that was in Dark Dreams 1 in 2004. And I actually taught myself how to write spells. And I was very aware of the spells I was writing for my story. I wasn't going to take some other spell. That was really, in my mind, not be cool. And I was very cautious and aware that, you know, even in the word that I was writing in this fiction, to have respect for the energetic side effects thereof. Well, you know, you have to take out one ingredient or turn it opposite or do something so that no one harms mm-hmm. themselves. <laughs> I've I've done that so many times. I've I've written something and I thought, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to make this, we're just going to make this another ingredient. We're just going to change the color here because I don't want anybody, you know, standing in the swamp in the middle of the night doing something, something that ends up being detrimental. Because you can't say don't do this at home because, you know, people will try all kinds of silly things. They will try. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're storytellers. So you're going to write the story and you're going to try to entertain. You're going to try to honor the traditions and the history. I wish I knew the right questions to ask when my all of my grandparents were alive. Um, all but one of them have gone on. So, like, the questions I have now as an adult woman, they're not able to answer them for me Um in that way anymore but you're not going to you know you're not going to tell all your business i mean that's another part of conjurer <laughs> you're not gonna put it out there um everything you know um who does that no one it's you know so you're going to fictionalize it but it's not but you're i'm you're very conscious of as eden was talking about how it's been used as a tool against us this um this fake this idea of zombies this merchandisers approach to it it's all stick pin stick stick pins and voodoo dolls and that kind of thing versus how it's actually practiced and incorporated in people's everyday lives. True. And it's also not looked well upon. I mean, I remember being in New York among a lot of um, ATRs, African traditional religions, and because they can point right across the water 
to living cultures in West Africa, in Africa, where they a lot of their traditions come directly from there, um, almost uninterrupted. Not exactly, but almost uninterrupted. In fact, they held on to stories and songs that those in the continent didn't, don't even sing anymore. They said their grandparents sang those songs or what have you, um, did those dances. Um, and they evolved there faster than they did outside in the diaspora. But this whole idea that you hoodoo is like the stepchild <laughs> of the of those spiritual um, traditions because it is um, such an individualistic, I would say a democratic practice where you you don't have to go through a middleman to get to the power, is if that makes any sense. Right. All the sense mm-hmm. in the world. Right. And it's, hoodoo is also something that is still growing and changing because when we were first brought to the United States. We still had all these practices fresh in our minds, but most of the plants and herbs and roots weren't the same. They weren't what we were used to. So going back to what you were saying earlier, we are an adapting people. We are able to create from nothing. We're able to create from very little. So these same practices were done with different different herbs, different roots, different uh, ingredients. And instead of being able to practice openly, so much of what we were able to do freely, we were no longer able to do. So we would have to hide or find ways to get away and practice this magic, practice, do this spiritual practice. And when Whites saw us doing that. It became this sort of, what are they doing? What are they hiding? What's so secretive about it? And it got this dark, evil image because, oh, well, it's got to be something evil that they're doing. Eden, you and Cherie could probably correct me on this, but from some of the reading I've done, a lot of that was hidden within a musical singing way that was acceptable by the slave masters. Oh, absolutely. So many songs are, and, and we've talked about this, have nuanced meanings and symbolism is such a a big part of those songs and coming from the part of the world that I'm from I'm from Charleston and I'm I have a Gullah Geechee background and Gullah is such an idiomatic language there's always nuance and double meanings and phraseologies that mean something extra to the native speaker as opposed to someone outside the language. And I think that that's a big part of how messages were sent and how conversations had to occur because nothing was necessarily able to be spoken outright. It's kind of like the legends of the the quilts and escaping slavery. Historians are still saying, well, maybe that didn't happen. We're not really sure, you know, and Honestly, I I think it did. Because one, if you look historically, black people have learned not to tell white people all their secrets. And most of what has been done over the years has been oral traditions, you know, whether that's, you know, in song or in stories, or in how to heal people, things of that nature. On one hand, we want to tell our stories. But on the other hand, think a lot of us hold back a lot in those stories. Because we know that if we say too much, then somebody's going to swoop, swoop in there and take what we've said and they're going to go and they're going to do their own thing. It's not, it's not so much that 
we don't want them to like steal our glory or whatever. It's just we know that when they take it, they're going to mess it up. And that's a worldwide approach. I mean, you can look and see how pharmaceutical companies have gone and discovered things in cultures and just taken over and devastated them. Be careful what you say, because let me tell you, you put words out there, they start to happen. Mm. Put it out there and, and it happens. I would really like to hear what you would love to happen in the world of Black Horror in the next year. Oh, wow. Um... Gosh, I would love to see more of these screenplays developed. Um, and I, don't, and I, um, I, w- I want to see more independent films being developed, um, uh, not just, you know, on the, you know, Jordan Peele level, but um, it would be amazing to have to be able to just turn on my television or go to my, com- my laptop and, and be able to watch a different black horror film, you know, every night. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like I'd subscribe to Shutter, which I really love. I'm enjoying it a lot. Um, but there's a point where you run to the end, just like in Netflix. You know, they bring out the new films, and you're like, I already saw that, I already saw that, saw that, saw that. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> and there really isn't a lot of black horror yeah. at all. You know, on Netflix or or Shutter. You know, there, there's some, some but, but we see most of it. It doesn't yeah. take you too long to, yeah, it doesn't take too long to exhaust all your so options there. are people there. out here who are writing great stuff. I have a wonderful horror screenplay that's ready to be made. Um, I know Linda has great stuff. You I'm know, sure that's Eden. right. <laughs> Linda's probably got 10 for y'all. I'm just We're saying. We're waiting, you know, come hit us up, you know. Um. Right. Every single one of us has something for y'all. So somebody with some money. We want some white people to write us a check. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I would, I would, that would be amazing. I mean, I'm already, I mean, when I did Dark Matter, you know, of course, the conversations that we're having, everyone was talking about, they only knew Octavia Butler. They only knew uh, Samuel Delaney. They knew uh, 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 Stephen Barnes. Uh, the review had just, you know, started emerging, you know. Um, Charles Saunders um, had been publishing you know, but they're, you know, Jewel Gomez, of course, but they weren't, there are certain people they never even considered. They didn't in the, know I was black, the, girl, please. I know. They didn't know you were black. They still act like they don't know who Jewel Gomez is. And I'm just like, what are you, how difficult is this <laughs> out here? It's not that hard. And then all the other wonderful people that we could name. But when I did Dark Matter, they were treating it like it was, you know, we didn't, we didn't do this. This wasn't a part of our world. We weren't a part of their bottom lines. I mean, there are writers... My family, my parents, and I have been buying their books for a very long time. We're not going to show up at your reading necessarily. We're not going to necessarily, uh, you know, would have been at, at a, a conference. But we're part of the bottom line. But, you know, but this conversation that we don't read the work, we don't, um, and we certainly don't create it, which just makes no sense. Even looking musically, if you're looking at the music, Sunrod, George Clinton, you know, Parliament, you know, uh, uh, Nona Hendrickson, you know, all these um, these these um, avant-garde, you know, out here artists, even just musically, that doesn't even make sense to say that we weren't creating this kind of work. But um, I'm waiting to see that happen for dark for horror. Uh, and I'm hoping that with um, Jordan's film and the projects that Tana Nareev and Steven are working on and others, Nalo Hopkinson's film Brown Girl in the Rings made into a movie. You know, I'm just hoping that more things are going to happen for us. Amen. Linda, what about you? All right, I'm going to make this real personal. It's all Cherie's fault. (laughs) This is going to get real personal. (laughs) A producer, Jamal Hodge, 
black producer who's won all kinds of awards for his scripts and is shown at Khan, has written a script based on one of my poems, a poem called Morning Meal, morning as in loss, not good morning America. And he's getting ready to, to bust out and try to, and work on getting funding and get uh, short out and then, you know, do a, a longer anthology. It'll be part of an anthology feature film. I love the idea of anthology films. I love having, you know, uh, five so many shorts in a, a, a group. And I would love to see more of that happening because, as Cherie said, there's some wonderful, wonderful uh, black stories being changed into scripts and that are happening out there. And I just like, you know, I'm putting out a, a shout out for Morning Meal. I hope that happens. Oh, it's going to happen because I spoke it. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all about what you speak. Spoken it can happen. <laughs> oh, and one other thing. I'm so happy. I start seeing it already. The, the authors in Sycorax's uh, Daughters, who people didn't know about, some people knew about Cherie. You know, some people knew about a couple of them in there. But some of the names that people weren't recognizing at all are starting to become more um, in other, in a bigger world. You know, they, that book got eight on the uh, honorable mention list for years best. Eden's story was one of them. You know, I want to see more of that, too. You know, I want to see more of the, the names people didn't know showing up in, you know, the wider world of horror writing. So do I. Eden has a, a wonderful hoodoo tale that's in, um, that's in Strange Horizons, so please look for that. <laughs> Thank you for the shout-out, Cherie. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's got food. It's got food in it. <laughs> And in Apex. I mean, and that wasn't even planned. That's just how it worked out. <laughs> I didn't set out to buy all Eden stories. It just worked Eden out Eden is that killing way. it. I, I mean, <laughs> she's everywhere. You can't help but buy her stories. You couldn't resist. There was no resistance. Resistance was futile. <laughs> yeah. And I need somebody to help to produce my Hank Blue film because it's, it's, it's the movie you got to see. It's the movie you got to see. Yes. What about you, Eden? What do you want to happen in the next year? Well, um, one of the things, I, if, since we're plugging our stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we're just manifesting, putting, that, putting it out in the universe so it can happen. Claiming our blessings. Speak it. I am looking forward to starting the promotion on my novel that's coming out. So in the, in the next year to 18 months, which is called Tying the Devil's Shoestrings. And it is about conjure and root work and finding a balance between the outside world and your family that practices conjure and those um, that don't. So I'm looking forward to that coming out and promoting it and that it goes well and that it sells copies. Say it. Just say what you want. I mean, I, I've already told you I was going to buy five of them, so... I appreciate you. I appreciate yeah, you. We got you. We got you. And it's young adult too. It's for it's for young people as well, right? It is for young people. Absolutely. Yes, so we yes, we have we're ready. Put me on the mailing list. <laughs> Absolutely. Um I'm looking forward to to more more film. I also have a screenplay that I've written based on one of my um short stories called The Choking Kind. Um but that's going to be probably um probably be submitting that to the Gullah Geechee Film Festival next year and see how that does there. But I'm looking forward to 
all of your films. And Linda, I love horror anthology films as well. Um, one that you might want to, that's running the circuit right now, it's not an anthology film, but it is a horror film that is produced, written, and directed by a Black woman, um, Zandashi Brown's Blood Runs Down. So that's making the, the circuit right now, and it is very Southern, Gothic tendencies, very woman-centered as well. If you find it anywhere, if you see it around, definitely go for that. And since you mentioned my Strange Horizon story, Every Goodbye Ain't Gone, I am um, working on a novelization of that. So hopefully nice. that's going to be nice. coming out in the next year. With the accompanying cookbook. <laughs> oh, that would be great. I hadn't thought about a cookbook, but that is actually a great idea. Yeah, you, I mean, when I read um, when I read that this story, it was so. First of all, it was funny, <laughs> <laughs> and that's always like a, that's always a gift in the in the in the in the speculative fiction world, whether it's science fiction, fantasy, or horror, interstitial, you know, humor. It's it's just a, a, that extra extra fun spice. But then it was also delicious. I was so, so hungry reading that. <laughs> I was so hungry. <laughs> Tanya, you do not get to forget to yourself, so put it out there. Well, I want to start my horror anthology podcast that I'm working on right now. I like to think of it as American Horror Story meets Superstition. Sweet! So I'm really looking forward to that. And I would love to also get a screenplay picked up because like like Shereen Land, I would like to see more horror written by Black people be produced by some major studios, not just independent studios or smaller studios. You know, I, I want them to get the big budgets, big releases, all of that, so that people can really enjoy our work and our creativity. Here, here. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, on that note, I'm going to have to say goodbye to all of you, as much as I hate to. Crying. Crying. (laughs) Thank you all so much for coming on the show today. It was an honor to just sit here and listen to y'all talk about this. And I really, really appreciate it. Tanya, thank you for taking the reins on the show. Well, these ladies made it easy. They do, don't they? So easy. (laughs) Eden, as always, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. A pleasure. Of course. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to meet you. Wonderful to meeting you and hooking up with my friends again. Cherie and Eve, Tony's a friend now too. Now you are, Jen. Yes. 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 <laughs> oh, thank you. And Cherie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you. It's just been, it's been wonderful to bask in your wonderfulness, ladies. So thank you for coming on the show. Listeners, there will be so many links in today's podcast notes. All the links. You won't even know what to do with yourself, except that I am assuring you right now that every single thing that I link to, you clearly need to go read or listen to or watch. That is, that is your directive after today's show. I am putting it out there as we've been saying. So it's going to happen. Thank you again, ladies. And I guess on that note, I'm going to let Tanya say goodbye, because this should not end with a white lady. (laughs) 
<laughs> you are hysterical. Yeah, you should be dead at this point, right? We've, <laughs> we've shot be. you. We're going to subvert everything. I am coming out. You're shooting me or beating me with like a deer head, and I am gone. So. Oh gone. my gosh. Gone. <laughs> Tanya, it's all you. <laughs> Thanks so much, Eden, Linda, and Cherie for joining us today. It was a fantastic conversation. I had so much fun talking with all of you, and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to the show. If you'd like to support us, you can find us at patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so at our email at skiffyandfanty at gmail.com, on Twitter at skiffyandfanty, and on Facebook at the Skiffy and Fanty Show. Our intro and outro music comes from Dimension by Creo. You can find out more about them at freemusicarchive.org.